Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Henserling, and I am your podcast host for the very first episode of Watch This List. Every episode, I will be choosing a different movie category to focus on. Today's is fittingly debuts. And my very special guest is friend and filmmaker extraordinaire, Frank Ritz, who will be sharing with us his rather unusual but compelling top five picks. Frank, how are you feeling today? Good. Is that your nice way of saying you don't like these movies? (laughs) That they're unusual and compelling? Um, Frank, spoiler alert. um, I actually am a fan of several but they are that means. well more than one um l- let me say as caveat to this that one of frank's choices is one that he doesn't know if i liked or disliked so i think i just gave myself away i'm still not positive how to read between the lines but i'm i'm excited regardless thank you for letting me be a part of the first episode and i'm very nervous about setting a terrible precedent so as a side note frank and i are letterbox friends we connected mm-hmm. that way and there is no one that is even close to frank's rewatch ability like <laughs> i'm not proud of it <laughs> frank has uh, he has seen inherent vice uh what 20. I didn't think we were going to start here. 20. 20. It's 20. And not only uh, rewatching, but re reviewing. Well, a lot of them are like one words, one sentences, like not real reviews. Mm, but Well, so Frank, can you please enlighten us on why you chose what you chose particularly? I just literally went to my favorite movie list and picked the five highest ranked the directorial debuts that were on there and four of them are in my top 20 and one might as well be so these are five movies that just hold real near and dear to the heart so the way that the show is going to be structured here on out or the idea behind it is that each week i'll have a different subject and then everything will be what the guest's favorite is so mm-hmm. we want to hear why you like what you like. We'll go through them one by one shortly. And then hopefully it will inspire everybody to not only add them to their watch list, but perhaps have one of them be their next film that they watch. Like next in line list. You know, I'm not going to get into my whole how I pick watching movie process because it's absurd and it takes forever. Mm-hmm. And it's just because uh, there's too many movies to watch. Like, I have a watch list I choose between that has a now 500 movies on it. Like every time I sit down to watch a movie, it's not a conducive way to do it. So I'm hoping the show also helps me in the future. Yes. And that is a great point, Frank, because one of the the impetus uh, idea behind this was because so many people will literally just click through different choices, even whether they're on their watch list or they're just clicking through in general And you could spend an hour looking for the thing that you're going to watch and then end up with nothing at the end. So the other hope is that by giving everybody five choices a week, that there will be something in here Mm -hmm. for everybody. Going to try my hardest to stick to like, let's talk about the movie and not the way too personal connections I have to them for various 
reasons. I mean, I'm sure that'll come up anyway, but it's fine. Yeah, I have a couch over here. Too bad we're not in the same place because otherwise we could go into the psychology of why. It'd be a much different episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so but we're gonna stick with the movies as much. We're gonna as stick with the films and the mm-hmm. recommendations, mm-hmm. and then the listener can decide whether or not any of them sound appealing. We hope mm-hmm. uh, the hope is that the passion has a contagion, like that your fervor will inspire someone to be like, maybe I'll check this out, even though it's not something that somebody would normally choose if they were just scrolling through Mm -hmm. based on synopsis or the way that the cover looks. So what we're going to do for Frank's picks is go in reverse order so that we end in his fave, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then we're not going to spoil him for you guys. Um, we're going to try not to spoil them, nor am I going to give the five titles away right now because you're going to have to listen to the end to get them all. Yeah, that'd be no fun. Yeah, no. So we're going to dive in and mm-hmm. we're going to start with film number five, A New Leaf, which is uh, directed by Elaine May. 1971 mm-hmm. comedy starring Walter Matthau and Elaine May. Frank, um, please explain why. Why what? Why I like it? <laughs> why, what is it I like about a wh- new leaf? Yes. And then what in particular stands out to you as far as Elaine's uh, directorial style and... Just the uniqueness of the way it's shot. What what's what makes this? What conveys this to you? So, as a director, it's not it's nothing loud and extravagant. Though there are a lot of flourishes, but she's constantly servicing her material perfectly. And I think the biggest things um, her directorial prowess shines on is timing. So it is a, it's a very dark comedy. The subject matter itself is is dark, but then the way that they go about it is has kind of a satirical sort of feel to it. I made the mistake of taking it very very seriously. If you don't though, uh I think it's a lot more enjoyable. I think there's a lot of like really intelligent serious ideas happening in the movie that is what does elevate it to such a high esteem in my mind, but it definitely is like a comedy first and foremost. Obviously, L.A. May, you know, came from her teaming up with uh, Mike Nichols, and they were like that famous. They were a huge comedy duo and all that. It's, I think it's just so funny. Like it's just like there's so he's such a dick. I'm just gonna say like the <laughs> he's like such a terrible person, but every quip that comes out of his mouth pretty much makes me crack up out loud he just goes around being rude to every single person and belittling them as much as possible while constantly having an overconfidence and nobody nothing can phase him like in the first 10 minutes you have this long scene of him and his lawyer where his lawyer repeatedly is like you have no money and he refuses to understand and he's like how else can i put this no there's no other way you have no money And it's the classic, are you saying I have no money? So it's this kind of like, 
I don't know the word for that type of comedy. It's like everything is like borderline awkward. It's pretty dry where it's like playing it straight, even when it's being absurd and silly, like Mm -hmm. clearly absurd and silly. Like there's a lot of physical comedy bits once Elaine May shows up. I just think this movie's really funny. (laughs) I don't know. How do you talk about your favorites? This is how. This is how. Um, We can't really discuss this without mentioning also that um, I believe, was it Paramount? That she was working with a studio and she had originally conceived a much darker film Mm -hmm. um, that was going to be three hours long. And there was going to be a lot more fantastical elements in it. And then the studio took it away and said, forget it, chopped it down half. It was not the final product that she wanted. So there is an element I felt of uh, that that everything wasn't completely seamless Mm -hmm. story-wise. And that could have been just because of the way that it was edited, which she wasn't, she did not have full creative control over. So a lot of people have said that that they wish they could see the three-hour version. I might disagree with that. I can't imagine this being longer and more serious. I feel like it's perfectly toned all the way through personally, but I'm, as you said, I have interesting taste, or however you nicely phrased it. Unusual. Unusual. (laughs) Better. (laughs) Unusual, but compelling, or uh, yet, maybe yet is the better preposition there unusual yet compelling taste all right well i mean like obviously you know i'm usually all for directors seeing through their vision but it's not the best for everybody michael mann's definitely one of my favorite directors mans can't make a director's cut to save his life he always makes the wrong choices and it's like buddy just stop like you had it and it was perfect leave it alone Mm -hmm. like almost every single time there are people that shouldn't be tweaking all day and night I'm not saying that's necessarily true of Elaine May because we haven't seen it, but I love the movie in its current form because it keeps it. It's the reason it feels disjointed and why I view it as a positive. It almost makes it have this like borderline sketch comedy tone where it's like every scene has like some idea of a joke within its own scene and it's followed through and executed in that scene before continuing on to the next while still moving forward a, a whole narrative. It's not like a like a modern anti-comedy thing where it's just random gag after random gag. It's still it's all propulsive and uh, informative of character. I like that almost zany approach to like what's just the joke of this scene because there always is one. Perhaps that the version that we have is the best one. I, well, it's the best one we'll ever see. That's for sure. It's the only one we'll ever see. A few, a few last thoughts. I swear I will be fast about them because I didn't mention any of the things that I think make it extra special beyond the comedy. I focus only on the comedy because it is this dark comedy. I'm trying to present that, but I think it does have a lot of like intelligent things about how rich people live in their insular, like not real realities. And this movie is constantly both of them bumping up against like normal people who see that they're oblivious to their reality and trying to take advantage of that. And it becomes like an interesting relationship between people of different classes while also constantly making fun of rich people and their ignorance towards how the world is supposed to work. 
And somehow it's also this really scary examination of how men treat people in relationships, which will be an interesting, unfortunate through line through most of the movies we talk about. And then way. And just last, last thing, I also do think it's somehow deeply romantic because I am a person who's all about uh, you can't help who you love and that's going to happen. And it's always a complicated, confusing thing. And sometimes no matter how it looks on the outside, if it's right for the people, I don't know. I don't know. So I find some like four seemingly conflicting tones that shouldn't work together that being the highlight for Elaine Main as a director is that she, I think she blends these like borderline horror movie satire, sketch comedy and romance actually cohesively. Like this doesn't feel disjointed in its thematics or anything of that sort to me. It feels maybe disjointed in it's like scene to scene playing, but I still enjoy that. That's all I got to say. Watch, watch a new leaf. This is the only one that I would call an outright comedy, but there are other ones that have comedic halves or undertones at least. Yes. Yeah. This is also uh, available to rent on Amazon. Okay. Okay, So number, number four, Frank, what is your number four pick? Your number four bizarre, crazy pick. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's so controversial, but it's, it's, it's Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. Synecdoche, New York. Uh, 2008, Charlie yeah. Kaufman, as I would imagine most people who love movies would know, this was his directorial debut, but he had written Being John Malkovich and Adaptation and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind prior. Uh, adaptation and Being John Malkovich directed by Spike Jones, and Eternal Sunshine of the Sp- Spotless Mind by Michael Gondry. So, while this is not his first film, it's his first directorial film. I feel like there's a big difference. And I personally think it's a major improvement. I mean, obviously, Charlie Kaufman has a particular brain. And that brain comes through in every movie he's associated with, whether he's directing or not. But I think his three, his now three directorial efforts have proven to me at least, that it he should be the arbiter of his own work. Because like I, I I love adaptation and I really do like being John Malkovich a lot. Eternal Sunshine is the one I always point to as being like, I think that's a perfect script, but like I hate how it's made. I don't like how it's executed even a little bit. I do need to rewatch it. It's been a while, but like it might even be his best screenplay, which is like even more frustrating to me how much I wish he could direct it. So if you've seen any of those movies you have a, already a good baseline of what to expect with Synecdoche to some degree. This is maybe a little more dour. It's a little more midlife crisis. It's a little more uh, questioning the point of existence, not just like relationships and our relationships to art and people, except of course that's also in there. I would say rather than a plot descriptor, it really is an existential crisis and it's also largely about death. Yes. Uh, the, the whole thing, literally the from the thing. opening scene. It's, yes. It's focused really hard in on death. Putting this beside a new leaf highlights to me more so than I thought when I was preparing for this and watching Frank's picks that these two in particular are very different in tone. So mm-hmm. Synecdoche 
you end up feeling very. It's a depressive mood and movie. Yeah. You, it's kind of rainy. Like you feel kind of heavy. It, It can cause reflection. I think if there's something particular that you can hang on to. Mm-hmm. But I want to know why you, what is it about it that grips you that makes you want to see it again? Because I don't want to see it again. Interesting. Well, I will say a short history that I saw this movie for the first time when I was like 12 or 13 or something and I hated it. I was like, this is a terrible movie. I don't even know if I finished it actually. Like I really hated it. And I was in love with adaptation of being John Malkovich by that point already. I started my cinephilia way too young. It's fine. So by that point, I was deep in the game, Um, but I hated it. I was like, this is incomprehensible garbage. And anytime I was brought up, I'd be like, pafooey. And then through the years, (laughs) I had friends consistently be like, we think you need to watch this. And then when I finally did, I was like, ah, I think this is my favorite movie. And for a while, it was literally my number one favorite movie. Um, I like feeling bad when watching movies. Like, I don't know how else to say it. Uh, I like it. I like a bad time. A bad time ends up feeling like a good time to me. I don't know. So I get that this type of movie is not for everyone. It's definitely similar to I'm thinking of ending things. I know a very polarizing movie that I also just absolutely love. The difference when Kaufman's directing versus his contemporaries who have done it, I think they all take everything as a joke And I don't think Charlie takes any of it as a joke, even when he's being intentionally funny. Like there, this is one of the ones I alluded to where I think the first hour is particularly like pretty funny. Like even when it is dark and dour and like anxiety inducing, whatever, like there are lots of funny, funny bits. The second hour, there are almost none. Like the, the humor definitely falls away after a while. And even in those funny bits, it's like he's being so sincere in trying to explore these ideas of the mind and like, what is the value of creation? And because the Philip Seymour Hoffman, the only thing apply you need to know is he's a theater director trying to make a play. And it's something that consumes his entire life to the point where he's literally taking over New York, whether, whether it's uh, directly alluded to or not. Like it's just a movie that's truly interrogating. Like what is the value of art and what is the value of what do we value with our existence? And he does it in a way that focuses solely on time and death, which are two things that I think, well, obviously affects everyone. We all inevitably are, moving through the stream of time and heading towards death. And it's a good thing to like sit with that sometimes, I think. It's not something I'm turning on every day. I hadn't watched this in four years. Like this, this is, I've seen this four times in my life, including that hated watch. So this isn't one I'm slamming all the time. It's definitely emotionally hefty and it's not an easy hang, but I think it's, super unique in how it goes about trying to sit in these existential topics because it is a lot of abstract ideas and metaphors presented visually. I don't know. I don't know. I just think it it really is trying to dive into the soul of the artist like he does in all his movies. But I think because he's solely focusing on time and death in a very expansive way, because this movie covers like 40 years 
and it and it feels like it earns that scope to me. I feel like movies a lot of times struggle to do that, and I think he nails it. Like it's not hopeless. It's just genuinely trying to sit with the questions of what do we value and why. And I think okay. it's also about legacy too. Yes. Like what you what you leave behind is it important to leave something behind? Can originality exist is another thing that Kaufman constantly addresses, especially in uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Can you, yeah. is there like, do I do have an have original, original thought in my head? Yeah. Mm, yeah. I think it. he's, if, if there's any person that could be, considered original in our modern zeitgeist like i would argue it's gotta be him and i know it's not like cool but i think he is my favorite screenwriter like actually like i i mean like <laughs> it's just he's i'm i'm so in the bag for kaufman i can't even pretend i'm not like i so like if you are and you haven't seen this that's wild to me and if you're even remotely interested in those movies you should definitely check it out i will say before we go to the next one that i would not start with this one, if you if you haven't seen anything by Kaufman, I would start with Eternal Sunshine because I think that's the most universally relatable slash accessible. I would weirdly say being John Malkovich too, though. Like oh. those two that but that is a thing I think people get the idea of and can ride with its weirdness in a like, oh, this is just like quirky, right? And then it gets into some big ideas and it's like it guides your hand pretty well. Okay. Go with me and do Eternal Sunshine. <laughs> You're, she, Amy's right. If you are bent a little bit more towards the weird, do John Malkovich and you'll have a great time. But Eternal Sunshine to me touches on themes that uh, everyone could uh, understand on a personal level. Okay. I, I don't disagree. I don't yeah. disagree. I I do want to highlight one last thing that's interesting about Synecdoche because I already brought it up as a common theme. The relationship between Caden and the women in his life and how that continues to evolve and change throughout the movie, too. And I think there is like an interesting Frank exploration of that where it's like, I know. Frank exploration. Jesus. Both. <laughs> a Frank Frank exploration. Frank Frank exploration. <laughs> of yes. uh, like, Psyche. Yeah, the psyche of like, where is desire actually coming from and what does it actually want between the opposite genders of man and of male and female specifically in this movie? Because it 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 starts out seemingly so hyper focused on like a sexual and romantic aspect of it. And as the movie goes, it starts being more about like the uh, concepts of like the divine feminine and, and trying to like almost tap into that. And that's a great pitch uh, for that film that you uh, can rent on Amazon also. Last thing I got to say then before you move on, so sorry, is just that from a production standpoint, Synecdoche is one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever seen and is the perfect encapsulation of the Charlie Kaufman like mental project. Like all the ideas are in there and he's literalized it in the, his most like conceivable way to the point where, you know, you got, he'd be directing scenes of people, directing people, directing people, directing people. Like it's not that we're, it's one of those movies at some point we're going like four layers deep of things simultaneously happening. And that is exciting to me, which you will either find 
it will be exciting with Frank yeah. or it will be <laughs> insufferable oh, no. slash pretentious for what? us normal people. So Man. also your it, boy, these are the two movies he gave four out of four, Mr. One, Mr. Ebert. And isn't this Ebert. his favorite movie of the 2000s? Synecdoche? I think Synecdoche was his number one of the decade. Don't tell me that. I'm 99% sure. Which is what made me rewatch it. His review also starts with that you need to see the movie twice, which also yes. supports Frank's. We're gonna uh, we're gonna move through this. We're not gonna yes. acknowledge that this is reality, and we're gonna go <laughs> to number three. Number three oh on Frank's list is the one that he doesn't know whether I liked or not. Although I'm sure he has an inkling, and um, which I have not discussed or logged yet on Letterboxd. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It is Great Buffalo 66 by Vincent Gallo, 1998, who does not, I read in his open letter, he does not like to be referred to as Vince. So we cannot call him that. I like calling him Vinny G, but. That's, I believe Vinny was in the list of acceptable nicknames. Nice. He said Vincent Gallo Vinny or Mr. Those are your options. Do not call him Vince. Okay, Whatever you do. Okay. Vinny. Vinny G. Vinny, Vinny Gallo, Vinny G. Frank, tell us. Oh I'm going to go ahead and say that out of your five, I think that this is the most impressive debut from a director standpoint. Tell me, in your opinion how its creativity matches up with the rest of your choices. Buffalo 66 definitely is the, well, I disagree actually with that statement. I don't think, I think my number one is more striking for directorial debut prowesses of choices and creativity, but this is definitely not far behind. This is a definitely wild movie stylistically. Like it's very loud and brash, even when it's being quiet, which is, Maybe not that often, actually. Uh, It's a very abrasive movie in almost every conceivable way because it is about a very abrasive human. The Safties clearly must love uh, this movie. Like, that is an easy way. The Safdie brothers, like, who made Good Time and Uncut Gems, you know, Uh, they they clearly love this movie. I don't know how else to say it. Like, it's that kind of high-wire, New York, anxious angry guy running around like a maniac. If you want a vibe context for Buffalo mm-hmm. 66, it is Silver Linings Playbook with Bradley Cooper. 100%. Okay? They they uh-huh. have see. extremely similar mannerisms, cadences, attitudes. They're both just getting out of something. They both go home their parents are similar. I won't say how. And the trajectory is very similar. So if you like Silver Lightning's playbook, or if you just want a reference in your mind of what we're, what kind of person we're talking about, that screams that. And mm-hmm. this is a this is a very fast talking, blunt, aggressive type of personality that he has. And then Christine Ricci is way more subdued, which I rem- also reminded me of J-Law. So there's a lot of parallels between those two. I won't get into it too much, but I just want to mention that if you like that, 
mm-hmm. you're a person who enjoys that movie, I think this will be a win. Absolutely. You're pretty spot on with that. Actually, I never thought or they never crossed my mind. And this isn't going to help sell my movie, <laughs> actually. <laughs> but I think the the biggest difference, though, is I think David o. Russell wants you to like his characters. And I don't think Vinny G gives a goddamn what you think about anything happening in the movie. And that is a big difference that could be extra off putting. Silver Linings, like when I start playing it back, I'm like, you're absolutely right. I forget how crazy he is. But that's because it feels like it's so it, there is a sentimentality there and not in a bad way where this maybe lacks that almost entirely. But I think I respect that more. Yeah, me too. I don't really, I, I think that if a movie doesn't care if you like it or not, should have automatic points if it's good. I agree. I'm pretty, so, I pretty much agree. The movie I also think it's the most like actually, which this is always fun to kind of poke my fellow film bro bears, uh, is Punch Drunk Love. They're, they are identical movies. It's the difference is, is that we like Barry, the lead in Punch Drunk Love, and we don't like Billy because at least Barry's like, all his like bad traits are usually when he's alone or to himself or like whatever in moments of like crazy anxiety that you can almost understand where Billy is just like, he's, he's a, he's a rabid wounded dog running around this movie, trying his damnedest to keep people away from him, trying his damnedest to not feel emotions, trying his damnedest to protect himself. And like, he will hurt anybody that even remotely challenges that. And that's not exactly for everyone to have such a unlikable protagonist. But at the same time, he is pretty funny. Like he says a lot of funny things. He's very funny. And I think that, uh, not to give too many comparisons to this, another one though, that I would say that's recent is like Mm -hmm. red rocket. Definitely. Uh, one of the complaints I've noticed that people have of that is they can't stand Mikey Mm-hmm. And I thought he was hilarious. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not, I'm not like condoning of course. his his behavior, but he he's very funny and he is trying very, very hard. It like, he might be trying in, a, in an immoral direction, definitely is trying in an immoral direction, dragging people along with him, et cetera. But his belief in like, the one track mind of what I want to do and I'm going to do it is admirable. And I think Buffalo 66 has that, mm-hmm. has that like raw intensity and you can't really help, but like, it's not that you like them, but you almost, it's almost inspiring to see people care that much about whatever it is mm-hmm. in those movies. Definitely a lot of that in Billy and his journey. It feels like a journey by the end of it. The first half, not unlike Synecdoche, is pretty damn funny and consistently funny, even when it's being horrible and depressing. It's still pretty funny inside that. The second half, the jokes kind of fall away because it's it, it's this trajectory of opening up, which is actually the common thread of all five of these movies. This idea of, I find her... Layla, Christina Ricci's character, more and more interesting every time I watch it. I think there is a lot of stuff she does that is fascinating. And her character seems like she's in her own movie, having a good time. An interesting thing you see, I think, with a lot of 
movies, especially early on in people's careers or even whatever. It's not just that, but like it happens a lot is that they, they, they spend all of their uh, creativity in like the front halves. And like, as movies go on, it's like, they kind of run out of ideas or they don't try as many interesting things. It's like this movie all the way to its literal final moments is still coming up with new and interesting stylistic choices to try and present you, whether it's like, frames inside of frames like suddenly appearing like the it's the greatest character introduction i've ever seen in a movie and i don't get why more movies haven't copied it where you see billy sit on a bench and then you have images pop over him summarizing his like last five years of experiences in 10 seconds it's it's very effective and there's things like long lenses shooting from rooftops the literal stock of film they use looks crazy and unlike any other movie I've ever seen. There's like musical asides directly to the camera that might not be happening in reality. There's so much going on in this movie. It's kind of an emotional onslaught, but I like that. (laughs) And it also feels remarkably complete. Mm -hmm. I think what I really appreciate is you're saying that the narrative logically follows and it's, it's, it's in like a really good rhythm. But then I also think that it just, there's no loose ends. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hundred percent. It's a fully realized idea and it has almost a formulaic way of arriving at, at certain conclusions, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel formulaic at all in its execution. And I I really appreciate how idiosyncratic and odd, eccentric, I would say, that the that everything's shown to us, but mm-hmm. at heart it really is surprisingly empathy inducing. Like you you can feel it. So it's versus Synecdoche, I will say, but between the two films, Synecdoche is something that I feel like you have to have a kindred spirit ship with in order mm-hmm. to really resonate. And this one, I think, is a little bit more, more people can feel what he's feeling than Synecdoche. Definitely. I think it's for sure running with more universal emotions that are easier to access hundred percent, like at the end of the day. And it, uh, is not too dissimilar from Synecdoche in a literal way because Vinny G is like filming in his childhood home and there's a, a person sings along to a song that it turns out is his actual father. So his movie father singing along to his real father. There's just a lot going on behind the scenes. This is something that's highlighted in our next movie as well, but wasn't necessarily in our last two. I think he's so true to the mind of the character. And he, so all those, which is, I think an important thing a lot of directors forget to do and is maybe the most important thing I've learned from overstudying like someone like Scorsese, who I think is the king of the headspace. Whether you like the movie or not, he is always being true to his protagonist headspace at every single moment in every single movie that is his driving force and i think that is so important if you're going to try to sell a movie about a character which this unequivocally is which is why it's so from his perspective and so wild stylistically and feels so manic in the first half and a little more 
sullen and introspective in the back half while still having the same verve. And manic. The real thing about Buffalo 66 is the energy. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a kind of a manic aggress- aggressive energy that you may need after Synecdoche's sadness. Yes, definitely. Buffalo 66, then Frank's number three is available for rent on Amazon. Now Frank's number two pick is a movie that is in, it's in your top 10. It's right right outside at the moment. I'm constantly finicking with my list. So it's it's like. It's in my top 10. And it's the movie that we both love the most of the five. Well, that we, yes, that we both do. We both, yeah. So this is a Sex Lies and Videotape, 1989, directed by Steven Soderbergh when he was 26 years old, which is incredible. Yeah. And makes Frank feel old or maybe it does maybe it doesn't how does it make you feel frank it makes me feel stressed out that i'm not doing enough do you look at his yearly output list to just feel bad about yourself he's prolific every year he released all the things he watched and read throughout the year and it's like 400 different things on top of usually releasing a movie every year if not two it's like what are you how steven stop making everyone look bad soderbergh Literally. (laughs) Well, and this is actually my favorite of all of his movies. Me too. But for the people who have no idea what this is, I think the title is very enticing regardless. Those are the three things it's about. Those are are the three things in life. Sex, lies, and videotape. Sex, lies, and VHS at the time. And then um, it is centered around... For people, which it has in common with my favorite movie of all time, He Was Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was Mike Nichols' directorial debut. A great, great movie. A great, great movie that is centralized around two guys and two women. Mm-hmm. Just like it, this one. To varying degrees of conflict, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is much more relaxing comparatively. But yes. yes, Frank, tell tell our listeners what it is about sex lies and videotape that strikes you on a uh, emotional level. On an emotional level first. Oh, boy. Yes. I think the simplest thing actually to say about it might be the emotional connection. And it's just that I connect to all four of the lead characters in very different but um, I relate to all four of the characters in different and specific ways. I think they're four, like, they're not exactly, like, full of endless depth, per se, but there is a lot to all of them, and their characters are so well-defined and unique to each person and brought to life by their performances, for sure, that even, like, yeah, John, the... Uh, Peter Gallagher is the person I relate to probably the least of the four, but like there have been moments in my life or relationships in my life or whatever that I know I have been more like him than not. And the same thing I can say about the other three characters as well. Definitely more connecting to Anne and Graham are two true leads in Andy McDowell and James Spader, but 
definitely. Yeah, I think that's that's the simplest way to get to the emotionality of it. It is a equally fascinating as much as it is an emotional experience to me. Like it, it does satisfy the watcher and the maker with like pretty equal excitement and like care towards this product because it's the it's what you highlight It's four characters talking for an hour and 40 minutes. And it's is about things that again in the that we all do have to relate to like it was kind of funny you know like the sex lies and videotape but like genuinely because it's it is about relationships and how we interact with others at the end of the day yes it focuses more on sex and romance and what those two things do mean exclusively and together in our lives which is a thing that most people will also deal with before they die at least and so it's an incredibly common experience in that sense and it it feels head and shoulders above any other. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to get into the history of sex lies and videotape because it, it should be pretty storied by now of it, like winning at can and starting the indie boom and all that stuff. Like it feels like this is the prototypical indie movie staple, right? Like just like get people talking in rooms about relationships and you got a movie, but this feels wildly different to me for a lot of reasons. And in a big part is the directorial stuff because I mean, man, they should teach this in all film schools. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie so efficiently communicate its characters and ideas with like intense focus, which is like what he has Soderbergh has refined throughout his career. But like it, it's all there in this first outing. He, there, there, there are no moments wasted. It's constantly feeling propulsive where it's like as soon as you get all the information you need in the scene it's going to the next one but all the scenes are just revealing more about character and getting them more into different statuses of conflict and it's putting all its characters up against one another and it's never stylistically loud in the opposite of something like synecdoche or buffalo it is very smooth it's a lot of like dolly shots moving in there's a lot of uh tripods static shots it's never doing anything too crazy with the camera because it's just trying to communicate what matters in the moment between these people and our understanding to them annie mcdonald and james spader to the more especially james spader interesting characters to ever be in a a movie of this sort at the very least i feel like later in his career he's kind of associated with this type of i don't know how to describe him he's almost I was going to say seductive. So that's where well, I'm I at. Feel, I thought you meant late, late career Spader. At some no, no, point, no. it definitely sp- spurred off into creepiness. I've seen Sex, Lies, and Videotape probably 15 times in my life. It was the first time that I was in love with an actor that I, it, in my memory that I can remember was mm-hmm. being in love with Graham. Um, and I've seen it so many times. And it always amazes me that a different character is relatable because mm-hmm. because they are so different mm-hmm. i i but, i'm yeah. i haven't hit your numbers yet i've only seen it six times yeah i think i've so. seen it it could be well i'm older than you a true um no not true then, i don't know yeah, how not, I know, there's not a, there's not a forever response there that's all right okay. Okay. i'll own it um i you, was just fascinated by like what you're saying too the way that it's done because the movie is never dull. 
the biggest thing I forgot to highlight. And it's because it's all about the editing, which has been Soderbergh's like MO since day one, evidently, because editing is obviously the only tool that's exclusive to the cinematic form. Like other things use audio, other things use cameras, other things use the written word and acting and whatever. But like the editing of one moment to another is the thing that makes the visual medium unique. It's putting Mm -hmm. the two moments together. And it to me seems clear as day that Soderbergh is creating this all based off the idea of the momentum of editing. And Mm. Again, I think that's so important to people starting out trying to make movies. I think people take editing for granted, and it's literally the most important tool because it's what makes it unique. And this movie is a masterclass in that constantly. Like the opening alone, you have it it instantly highlights our two most important characters and how we're going to follow their journey because you have the words of Anne over the images of uh, Graham. James Spader and Andy McDowell, like it's intertwining them before we even know what's happening before that can consciously cross your brain. He's setting up the movie and it's literal opening moments of how this is going to evolve and note that this is our main entry point into the story is through these two people and it's how they're going to be changing the most which does spark a strong emotional reaction. I do sob every time I watch this movie. And I was watching it with my friend this last time. And definitely like, uh, there was, I always cry at the ending, but there was some random time, like 15 minutes before it ended, where I was just like trying my hardest not to turn into a weep. I'm like wiping tears from my eyes, like trying to keep it together. I had to say something to make sure it didn't turn into a weep. I'm like... I'm trying not to cry right now. And he's like, you're allowed to. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm trying not to like just be a weeping baby on this couch. I think it's a very cathartic movie in that sense because it is just about uh, opening up. And I think that is a very powerful trajectory for characters almost 100% of the time. Like the desire to be open with another person like what else is there i don't even know the biggest leap you can take as an individual to decide to intertwine with another person that's pretty wild uh yeah and connects to buffalo 66 as well it kind of flips every possible angle on its head that's the thing too like you were saying like uh, about buffalo i think this movie is the everything that is set up is going to be perfectly laid out. It is a very, this is, this is maybe my favorite type of movie. And I get again, why maybe it doesn't work for people, but it is so intensely schematic in its design, like from its literal plotting and how it's orchestrating its characters getting from a to B, which I don't think is a bad thing. Cause that's what a movie is, but it's always caring about the characters. First and foremost, it is like, how do you combine those two things? Because when you focus on character, that's how you get to like the depths of emotion of being a human. But you're putting it through the perfect prism of like, what do movies do best? It's create scenarios to get the people to get to the ideas and the emotions while feeling genuine so that we can connect to it beyond just like, I like what I'm seeing. Like, let me emotionally start to be a part of this tale. And It's definitely, you know, like a pretty like limited scope of viewing like a certain type of relationship. But as far as that goes, I don't know if there's a better examination out there. I also read recently that 
Soderbergh had said that that was everything he knew about relationships up until that point of his life. I read the that interview you linked in uh, on your letterbox review of your last watch of this, and it was a uh, not fun for me because I was like, ah, oh no, ah. ah, I relate even more than I thought I did already. This is great. It it's a very inspiring movie. Like I have finally started working on a feature script and it, I realized not too long into it. I was like, Oh, I'm just doing, I'm like taking the structure of this movie. I think it is such a, without meaning to, and I'm not going to change it because it's a great structure. I don't know what else to say. I think it <laughs> like genuinely should be taught as like an object of how to, how to efficiently make your movies. I don't think this movie has anything wrong with it. And it's very strange to me that it's not held in a more wide, high regard. Like, I don't often see this at the top of Soderbergh list, and that confuses me because, I mean, it it almost stinks that, like, yeah, I do think these are these five people's best movies, and it there's got to be some part of that that's irritating. Like, you did it the best on your first try, but, like, that's not to say the work that comes after isn't equally amazing. I don't know. I just, there's something otherworldly to me about this movie and maybe it is like ah, too personal of a connection but it just i don't know i love it gets ya and and the even crazier thing is that i don't even think this is the best movie of that year it's just it's very unfortunate <laughs> that two of the greatest movies of all time came out in the exact same year go ahead and mention it frank before we just move do the on. right thing I, oh, they're okay. both just, they're both unreal achievements Early on in two very interesting directors' careers. Who are both still going, too. Who are both still going at, like, rapid speed. It's fat. He's fascinating to me. And that is Amazon rental as well, but I would recommend if you can get your hands on a copy. Or is I it not streaming it on the Criterion channel? It's not streaming on Criterion, but it, that doesn't... The, it Silly might book. be, eventually. Yeah. Right. Okay, now, we are at number one. Which probably is, the least known movie. It is coincidentally streaming on Criterion. At least oh, it's nice. it is at the time that I uh, that we are recording this. There is a retrospective that they're doing, focusing on the director right now. So they have, I think, four or five of his films. But Frank, why don't you tell us the title since this is your fave? It is Distant Voices, Still Lives from 1988, directed by Terrence Davies. If all the rest of them have something in common, this is, uh, I would consider the outlier of Frank's selections, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, very important and near and dear to you. Mm -hmm. Not only, I think, for your particular taste, or your even general taste, but also your your style as a filmmaker, as a person. I mean, obviously, um, your short film is very reminiscent of this too. I mean, mm -hmm. I know that it was a heavy influence on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before making my last movie, I had discovered Davies and f de discovered at that time a love for David Lynch too. So I was just trying to like smash yes. those two things together. Which you did. Straight up. Yeah, thank you. It's not it's not hard to copy people. Uh, <laughs> but this might be the only example of the classic indie move to ever work, where I'm pretty sure they just made Distant Voices, and then they were like, 
be a real shame to just let this be another short film. Like, why don't you make this a feature? And he's like, I have this other idea for a short film. I bet you we could put them together and have it be one movie. Ah. Like they weren't intended to even be connected or whatever. But it was like the investors or whomever saw Distant Voice and was like, can you make it a feature? Which is almost never a good route or decision to make like quite literally like padding a short just to get to the feature length such a common reason that people make their first films because they got an idea that can maybe sustain 50 minutes but if i just throw in a couple more scenes then it's a feature film you know this might be the only one of that that's ever actually works that because yeah they're filmed two years apart and somehow that two years does like a world of difference like in creating this thing of time passing which is what this movie is actually about like yes it is about this family with an abusive father and a mother and three siblings but like no it isn't either (laughs) like i think it's just about i've never seen a movie better handle memory Time and memory are two things that people are obsessed with when it comes to film because we can, well, it's what's literally happening, right? We film a moment in time and then it becomes a memory and it is creating a living memory quite literally by the act of making a movie. So there's something inherently attractive to people, I think, about pursuing these concepts in the filmic form. And I personally have never seen a movie better depict the ideas of memory better than in this movie. Oh, because it is kind of challenging to follow in a way if you don't just give up and slip into its stream because it is very stream of consciousness. It it the way the movie flows, there's no there is like a present moment plot that never is fully addressed in the film, but it's usually a wedding or a funeral and then it it focuses on some character and it will go off into their web of memories. And sometimes it's memories inside those memories. And sometimes you're switching to a different purpose person's memories before coming back to that initial event. And then maybe starting off on a web again, it's that associative feeling. Like if somebody just says a word like hammer, what is the first thing that came to your mind and why it's like that sensation? Like why, why do I have this particular emotional connection to that one memory for that word or that place? Anytime I think of that place or that person, there's one thought or image or whole memory or day or whatever that comes to mind. And that sensation is all this movie is about like trying to communicate that. And when I watched it for this rewatch, I made one of my closest friends watch it with me, his, his final, his, his first comment when it was over, he's like, I really hope this is based on a book because if it's not, this is painful to endure. Cause he's like, this is too real. You can tell somebody lived through these things. Again, it's only like semi autobiographical. I'm pretty sure he was like the youngest of like eight or nine children, but, but there's only three in the movie. And he was still a child when his father died. They're all older in the film when that happens. And I promise that's not a spoiler because you see him on his deathbed like 10 minutes in, but then he doesn't actually pass away for a lot longer because this movie does not care about the idea of linear progress. It is just about how, I mean, it's in the title. It's these two phases of life. It's very also, I don't see how you could talk about it or describe it without also mentioning the music. Because 
the songs, the way that they communicate where they are emotionally and and kind of the the entire atmosphere of the film are literal singing, like the characters themselves sing. So mm-hmm. we're not, I'm not talking about uh, like how Tarantino uses music, for instance, right. where it's it's a it's its own sort of character. This mm-hmm. is like they it's not a score, it's not on top of it. They're actually singing old songs or wartime songs or whatnot. And that to me is the most the strangest aspect of it that separates it from anything else I've ever seen. I don't mm-hmm. they do this also, I think in Deep Blue Sea, Davies does. There's a lot of it in Long Day Closes too. It's very strange. And I, I think that that's a, that's a huge staple of his style that mm-hmm. you, you have to mention um, along with, yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. He, 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 I love music and movies. Like that is one of the most exciting things to me. And he, I've never seen a mo- another movie do it as much as this, where it's like, it's borderline a musical, but it's never yes. the muse. The songs themselves are not reveal are what is revealing. It's the way it's being sung. It's the context of why they're singing. It's where they're singing. It's not the songs themselves, which right. is also endlessly fascinating because it's takes place in the forties and fifties in London and obviously that's like a crazy time of change for the working class, which is what these people are. And it's just a movie about trying to, it's a movie. It's maybe my other, one of my other favorite types of things in movies is like this idea is the idea of attacking nostalgia. Cause I am not too nostalgic of a person in the typical ways. I think I do get entranced by the ideas of memory and what they mean to us and stuff like that. But I'm not, I don't like to sit back and think about the good old days and reminisce about the old times and whatever. So I think when a movie realistically is trying to approach nostalgia in a more honest way, I get more excited because it's not just about the good or the bad times. Cause there's, I mean, there's way more bad times than good times, but it's just about like, what are the things that are still affecting me to this day? What are the contradictions of those times? Like they have this terrible monster of a father. And yet when he's gone, of course they miss him. It's still their father. Like there's no clear, easy character arcs or it's the messiness of life trying to be communicated in in an overly expressive way. Like there are not normal performances. There are not normal scenes. It's like all very, uh, inner like almost slang dialogue that feels like it's all like if you don't understand the context you I don't understand half of the dialogue in this movie actually like not just like what they're saying like with subtitles on I'm like I do not get what they are talking about and yet I am still fully emotional and invested the entire time in this story because the the only movie I'd compare it to actually I think that even comes close because it feels so singular is weirdly Tarkovsky's mirror and the 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 key reason is is that the POV is the omniscient person creating the movie they they aren't literally like a character in the story but they are so Davies is our POV character by making the movie because he's literally trying to mine through his own past and the way it's filmed is very nostalgic but the things you are seeing are not 
It's all very painterly. It's all very precise. There are so many static shots for like minutes that will turn into long dolly shots. And these scenes play very long and slow. And it feels so much longer than it is because it's only like 80 minutes. But like, I love that. And it feels so enthralled into a world that is alive and you can tell somebody lived it. I don't know, man. It cuts straight to my another movie. I just cry during so many different parts of it. From like whether it's harrowing or happy, it's just like the the it's life. I don't know. It's life to me. It's like it, I feel, almost feel like for you, it's the way that you describe it feels like coming home or something. It's like it a, does. It's like a homecoming film for you. They, they, I, the more I watch it, the more I do feel closer to the the characters as characters and their personalities and the things that do distinguish them. And they become more and more human, actually, the more I watch it. Because it is so almost alien because there is no other movie that exists like this. Even, even his other movies start to, like, get a little more digestible in a more conventional way, even when they're not. This is definitely him in his most purely artistic and... Again, I've never seen anything that looks like this movie even. Like the way it's lit and the colors and the movements, it's just, it's bananas from beginning to end. This was the one I was going to argue, I think is even somehow more stylistic than Buffalo. It's just not as loud with its like choices, but every single moment is heavily stylized and like choices down to like the second. It's almost scientific how it's made because everything is so connected to the music or the locations or how people are intertwining through movement. I don't know. It's just, it's bananas to me. And it's a movie I can never see dropping out of my top 10. It feels like one I have to protect in there because it was monumental. I was like, I didn't know you could just, I know you could do any of this. I actually didn't know a movie could be any of this, which is all the things I care about, like, or a lot of the things I care about. Like family time, memory, music, are the good times, the bad times, how we're changing and evolving, all those things. It's so very good. I don't know. I think that you're part of the reason that I'm doing this podcast because I want people to hear the enthusiasm of people's favorite films. So even if it's something that I wouldn't personally recommend or that I think that everyone would like, like you're saying. It definitely is a particular movie. I feel like it's a classic, like get labeled with an art film. Like you're not going to see this anywhere except like a tiny theater on a rainy Sunday. And it's like, who's even going to be there? I don't know. Me. The answer is me. Uh, you're going to be there. The the I just want to say, uh, uh, I haven't talked about Terry D much, who's my favorite miserablest ever. He's such a downer of a dude and it's so awesome to me but he is also one of the most he's probably the most inspiring person on this list because he i believe was like 40 or 41 when this finally got released he had made a couple short films in like the late 70s and early 80s that do now get released as like a trilogy and a feature form but like they are they were made years apart as distinct short films of different stages of his life whatever but it's just this guy who was living life, this repressed gay Catholic man from the 
fifties in England who just finally got to like make his movies and he's never compromised on his vision. And it's something that's so inspiring to see of a person just like fully believing in themselves and doing whatever it takes to get the thing they see in their head onto the screen. Like unquestionably, if you like the movie or not, cannot matter because he made the movie he was looking at in his brain. That is undeniable, probably more than any other movie I've ever seen in existence. It is exacting in a way that's not tedious. Well, to me, like uh like a Fincher or a Kubrick or somebody of that ilk. It's not that sort of tedious. It's just it's meticulous in a artistically expressionistic way. So I love well Terrence said. Davies and he's very inspiring as a this is the most inspiring debut movie because it feels like no other movie in existence still, except maybe mirror, but that one's even, that one's even more diffuse and hard to get into. So definitely give this one a shot first. Yes. And I'm going to recount now, since we're at the end, the list that we want you to watch is a or new, that I do this, the, the list that Frank, <laughs> wants you to watch is A New Leaf by Elaine May, Sinaitiki, New York by Charlie Kaufman, uh, Buffalo 66 by Vinnie G, <laughs> Sex, Lies, and Videotape by Steven Soderbergh, and ending with Distant Voices, Still Lives by Terrence Davies. And now something that I love growing up uh, that I watched religiously was Inside the Actor's Studio with James and one reason I loved it so much is because I love the questions at the end when he asked people what they wanted to be told by St. Peter at the pearly gates, where their turn offs, turn offs, et cetera. So I have devised five questions in that spirit that I'm going to ask Frank that are popcorn questions, meaning not long winded answers so we'll see how well we do with this uh, first episode. I'm going to continue on this tradition with every guest I have and get a very interesting answer. So no pressure, but this is the first round. Okay. So first question. I feel like I'm a game show host. First question, number one, what is the most underrated movie? Of all time, right? Okay. It's, I think, I think think it's place beyond the pines probably uh since day interesting one interesting answer sorry i'm not since, okay yeah just since day one i always thought that it needs to be in the same conversation of things like the godfather i'm sorry i just do and one day i think it will never in my life would i have thought this as your answer and i think that is uh out of left field bravo that really shocked me but i'm channeling my because to me that just does not means react. like it just means like what isn't because underrated is a weird word and subjective word to me it's like that's a movie that should be in the conversation with all modern american classics and it never is and it bothers me like okay. that feels as obvious to me as something like there will be blood Sold. personally okay. i pick blue valentine that's just me i love that number too. two what is your happiest movie experience this is the reference to the movie I've seen the most times, probably close to 100. It's got to be the first time I watched Die Hard because that 
literally <laughs> changed my whole life. This is I, the the shirt I'm wearing is Die Hard. Actually, you can't see it, but it is it is a Die Hard shirt. So that's hilarious and fitting. I was re- refraining from making such a comment. The, okay. the, 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 I, yeah, I always, for whatever reason, wanted to be a director since before I had thoughts. I don't know why. Die Hard was the first time I knew why. I was like, oh, now I get it. Like jumping on the couch, so excited by a movie, just like I didn't, like, let's go. Like just a ball of energy, eight year old Frank, just like everything changed that day. So Beautiful. here we are. Okay, number three. What is a movie you changed your opinion on? There is only one movie today I'm pretty sure I've gone from zero to five stars on, and that is uh, <laughs> Nicholas Winding Reference, Only God Forgives. <laughs> when I saw it at the time, I gave it zero stars. Now I think it's a five-star <laughs> amazing movie. Uh, wow. Yep. That's that's that is the movie I've changed my opinion on, you know. These are really good answers. Uh just to be transparent here, I did not know that that what Frank was going to say and these are dynamite. Congrats. <laughs> I'm surprised. It's a crazy movie that is very fun and I watched it earlier this year and still love it. Okay. <laughs> it's insane. Okay. It's the most insane movie. We won't even go there because number 4 an actor you find undeniably sexy i think i just gotta be honest to the what has already been answered and the answer is ryan gosling and he's now three of my answers involve him uh not the future intentionally Ken. he was just uh yeah yeah i was debating between an answer and then my friend sent me the picture of him as ken and i was like jesus christ Done. so that that solidified he was my gonna be my answer it he I don't think you're alone in this one. I know. Since I was like 13, though, it's been a thing of how much I like Ryan Gosling. Like people, I like how I, you picked a male. That's good, Frank. Frank uh, has no no discrimination here. It's anybody and everybody. Exactly. Yes. A good face okay. is a good face. Okay. Last one, number five. This is a little bit harder for me to say, and I don't have a great British accent, but I'm going with it. If you were to die and come back as a movie character... Who would you choose? This is the hardest question to answer because like a million different things go through my mind of like, well, what, what does that mean? Like, do I pick a person with a lot of money so I can do what I want and like help people? Or like, do I, is it just in the context of the movie itself? Like, is it just, so my answer, I think at least this first time, I'm excited that I get to hopefully answer these again. If I ever get to come back, Mm -hmm. I think it's. I don't, it's baby. It's baby and dirty dancing. I <laughs> straight up. That is the dream scenario. Just like, yeah, I want to go somewhere for the summer and have a way too hot person teach me how to dance hot and then be hot together. That's the dream for sure. It's not to be him. That's boring. I want to be swept off my feet baby. and lifted into the air. I want to be baby. You want to carry the watermelon. I have I have a watermelon. I carried a watermelon. I yeah, carried not, a watermelon. I, can you see it? That's the big old box over there of dirty uh, dancing uh, somewhere. Uh-huh. I can't, am I pointing at it? I can't tell. Oh, I thought you were joking, but you're serious. Oh, do you want me to go grab it? Oh no. Uh, the majority of our people are listening, Frank. They're not <laughs> okay, watching, sure. so sure. you know. But I, we believe you. 
that you have said item and think you're a little crazy. Um, but I love, those- well, I, I, this is this is that's the hardest thing you've asked today in the weirdest question. And I do like it. But that was the only thing that I could think of. That's baby. beautiful. I think that's great because I recently watched Dirty Dancing because yeah, you didn't Frank like it gave enough. it. Frank gave it five stars like a maniac. No, what do you mean? I have thought about it since, so I have to say it has stayed with me. And another thing I really like that uh, Jennifer Grey said uh, on the Drew Barrymore show of all places, um, (laughs) random, which I didn't even recognize her because she had a nose job. And so she she actually doesn't look, she doesn't look the same at all. That's another issue or a not issue. I'm happy for her if she's happy. But it's a subject. So I am saying what I liked that she said recently on the Drew Barrymore show was the chemistry between her and Patrick Swayze. She was like, it would never have worked to date in real life, but sometimes you're just good between the sheets. And I was like, that is apt. And I agree. And I think that they have some of the best physical chemistry in the, in like period. So I will give you that. You called it the horniest movie ever made. I don't know if I go that far. I think you're you're standing by it. Yeah. The fact it's PG 13 is everything. That is what makes something horny. It's not the sexiness that you can lean into in movies. Like it's, it's like all it, it's just, ah, it's the horniest. This coming from the person who called cruel intentions, one of the horniest oh, movies ever made. Also one of the horniest. Yeah. So horny. <laughs> Which is not PG-13. The the Lady Eve would probably be my third choice. Those might be the three horniest movies the I could think Eve, of. The Lady Eve, that's that's pretty good. That one uh, with the the scene where she goes and he's like taking off her stockings. Or, I remember that he said it like sitting on the bed. I was like, whew. That whole movie is that. Body heat. That's oh, so is dirty. Dude. That's not horny. It. That's a different tone. That's that's like okay. sleazy, sexy. That's uh, not horny. Frank, we're gonna. This cut is not you the off tone now. to end on. Yeah, this is. Come on, Dirty Dancing is the best. It opens okay. with people grinding to be my baby. What else do we want? That's cinema. And with that, I'm serious. <laughs> I feel like it should end there. But with that, thank you for listening to watch this list with Amy Henserling and Frank Ritz. Yes, that's that is me. See you at the movies. <laughs>